0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19
1: crisis and beyond.
2: Hi, I'm Shivaglani. We've had the pleasure of welcoming many guests to Raise the Line who are working in the trenches to improve how healthcare is delivered and paid for and to improve health outcomes. Today, we're going to take a step back and get a broader look at what's happening in healthcare reform and health policy with experts from the University of North Florida, Brooks College of Health. Dr. Sham Pariani is Director of the Executive Master of Health Administration Program, and Dr. Hanadi Hamadi is an Associate Professor and Health Sciences Researcher. They both bring a lot to the table and we'll be hearing about their backgrounds in their own words in a minute. I'm really looking forward to getting their insights on what's happening in these areas and why learning about it should matter to health professional students and practitioners. So thank you both for taking the time to be with us today. Our pleasure. Thank
1: you so much for having us.
2: I'd like to start with getting some career highlights from both of you and learn about what drew you into a career in healthcare and education. So let's start with you, Dr. Amadi, and then pass it on.
1: So I started really wanting to go into more of a medical route. I got into a nursing school, and as I reflected back whether I should pursue a nursing degree, it was a no for me. And then again, once I graduated from my biology degree, I applied for medical schools, kind of like the traditional route. And that wasn't really it for me either. And so I decided again, perhaps dental school is the right way for me. And I realized I didn't really was interested in helping one individual at one time, but rather a group of people at once. And that is really what made me look into a PhD program in health policy and management. And how can I really change the health system within and even within the federal government?
2: That's great. That's very relatable actually in terms of going to the different programs. And how about you, Dr. Parani, how about your background?
0: So I'm a a radiation oncologist, a physician, and I grew up in a family that was doctors. So it was expected that you would become a doctor because my father was a doctor. My oldest sister was a physician. So if you didn't become a physician, I think you were kind of like a black sheep in our family. So I went to medical school and practice oncology here in Florida for the last 30 plus years, and also help run a large medical group around the country. I needed more expertise in health administration. So I came to UNF, and I'm a UNF graduate. I have a master's in health administration degree from UNF uh, that I got about 20 years ago. And then I, when I graduated, I've been told that I never left UNF. Uh, so it's often, you know, students never leave campus. So I was probably one of those. I was dragged back in, uh, in a nice way, because I was on multiple committees and helping with the health administration and college of health program. And then I started also teaching part time uh, about 10 years ago at UNF. And so I've been actively involved in the last year or so I've been the uh, director of our new executive MHA program, which we'll tell you a little bit more about in a few minutes.
2: Well, that's great. Um, and I, and before the show started, I mentioned the fact that um... I grew up in Melbourne, Florida, just a couple hours south of where you both are in, in Jacksonville. So I have a lot of friends who've gone to UNF, and we're fortunate Moses, to be able to work with many students and some programs at UNF as well. So uh, Dr. Amadi, can you give us an overview of the Brooks College of Health and particularly what you all offer in the MHA program?
1: Absolutely. So our Brooks College of Health is really housed in Jacksonville, Florida. And one of the uniqueness of Brooks College of Health that it's not uniquely to an allied health program. It has nursing, a PT. Exercise science, dietetic and nutrition, public health, and health administration, which typically in other universities you see it merged within the context of public health. The MHA program, which is our master's in health administration, is a statewide recognized master's program. It is CAMI accredited. We have a cutting edge curriculum that is really focused on bringing in community partners into the classroom so students not only learn from researchers and what I do but really learn from those who are in the trenches learning from what is happening currently and that kind of strengthened the program really over the past two years as we were developing and adapting to the new world of COVID.
2: That's a very timely time to pursue the the MHA degree. And we haven't had too many people on the podcast who've gone through that program or through programs like that. But again, great to have you both on to explain to our audience, many of whom could consider getting MHAs as well. And so Dr. Parani, you do the executive MHA program. Can you talk a bit about how that differs, the learner profile you get, and then what exactly the goals are of that program too?
0: So uh, as Dr. Hamadi said, we've had the MHA program for 30 years, and I said I was a graduate myself. Uh, but one of the things we discovered was, uh, especially with working professionals uh, like myself, was it's hard to balance school while working full time in a healthcare environment, which the hours aren't predictable, and so going to class is a real struggle. And most people have trouble, you know, going regularly to class and taking two or three courses per semester and completing the course in a, in a timely fashion. It took me several years to finish this course, where most people, if they were able to devote their full time to it, would be completed in five semesters or so. So we came up with an alternate solution, which is an executive a master in health administration program directed at working professionals. So working healthcare professionals who are already in the field, uh, have some experience. So um, their knowledge base is a little further advanced so we can start at a little more accelerated level and and continue at an accelerated level, Uh, but all the instruction's done online. So you don't have to physically come to campus for any of the courses that can all be done remotely as i mentioned all the instructions done remotely but the the instructors of the faculty are exactly the same that teach our mha program so the coursework is very similar or parallel to what is done in the face-to-face program but it's all done online again it also uh, requires about the same time about five semesters to complete the course of study very suited and flexible for people who are working full-time in the healthcare profession so we have physicians Nurses, pharmacists, uh, physical therapists, radiologists, radiation technicians, nurse practitioners, uh, really the gamut healthcare you know, healthcare administrators even that are you know looking to advance their career. So we have a very gamut and diversity of students in this program.
2: That's amazing. and it's good to know that there's so many interprofessional folks who, who pursue MHAs as well because we clearly need not only coordinated care for patients, but probably interprofessional and coordinated health policy work. So moving into actual health policy, um, you know, it's been about a decade since the Affordable Care Act started encouraging a focus on population health here in the U.S. And uh, we're talking a couple of weeks after the Supreme Court yet again upheld Obamacare or the ACA. Dr. Amadi, can you comment a bit about the ripple effects of the ACA on our health system? That's obviously a large question, but anything top of mind for you, given your studies there?
1: Absolutely. I'll focus a little bit about population health and really the goal or the ultimate goal of the Affordable Care Act was to do one thing, and it did it very well, which is to provide the insurance card membership to as many people as possible. It didn't really do very well thinking about the capacity of the system, how will these people access the system, at what point do these people need access to the system, but rather that membership card saying you can enter the system. And so the focus of the Affordable Care Act was specifically targeting that population health component, saying we'll go to them in the community and we'll help them in the community. All non-for-profit hospitals, which is about 60 to 70% of that of the U.S., are now obligated to participate in population health metrics to maintain their not-for-profit status, which means they have to do a three-year needs assessment of the community. They need to provide services and outreach and partnership to the community, The downturn of a policy such as this that is grand in size is it turns hospitals into a checkbox system where they say, I provide population health because I do tobacco cessation program. Check. And so now what we're struggling with is the efficacy, the strength of these community population health programs and initiatives. How are they engaging in the community and also creating an unforeseen issue and gap in some programs or some communities are a lot better off than others simply by the strength of the health system that exists that are now not only an acute system but a public health organization that provides population health efforts and so really that is one of the biggest ripple effects of the system is the system isn't intended to provide population health it's intended for acute care treatment and discharge and now we're asking it to be a chameleon and provide population health, and we're seeing the unfairness that exists. The community health rankings by the Robert Johnson Foundation shows us that it's really important for hospitals and health system to participate as a valid member of the system, as for the population health system, not just as their own entity of care delivery.
2: That makes a lot of sense. And actually, let me pull on that thread a little further before we go back to Dr. Priani for another question. You know, we've had a lot of guests on our podcast talk about the importance of incorporating the social determinants of health. For example, Chris Chen, who runs Chen Med, also in Florida and, and all over, as well as Toyana Ajayi, who runs City Block MD. And these are new primary care delivery models that are specifically focused on incorporating social determinants of health into diagnosis and treatment plans and removing obstacles to a person even getting into or accessing that healthcare, as you mentioned, things like providing transportation or even housing. So part of your research, Dr. Hamadi, focuses on evaluating these health outcome initiatives. Can you talk a bit about what your verdict has been on whether this emphasis is working to reduce costs and improve health outcomes?
1: So it's a twofold answer, and my apologies for doing it that way to the researcher in me. But for those who are doing it well and understand the scope of what social determinants are and how they can implicate it not only In delivery of care and treatment and diagnosis, but follow-up and continuing care, we see significant improvement in patient outcome and patient safety as they migrate through a system that talks to each other. But when we see it in big organizations, I will not name names, where the patient comes in and is recommended to fill in a social determinants questionnaire at point of entry, that doesn't really have a in-process route of how these multiple physicians, multiple admins are going to view a six, seven-page survey about a person's social determinants at what point or what information becomes relevant. It really falls back onto the patient and consumer knowledge on how they can bring in their social determinants as well to the conversation. So a lot of initiatives that empower patients to understand how social determinants are impacting their health. And that conversations with physicians in the room, as they consciously apply it, is where we see this most success. But when it's just running in the background as something that's important, we're just collecting data. There are, so there's a continuum where health organizations are at. Some are at the beginning where they're just collecting the information, not really sure how they're going to use it. Some that are finding ways to utilize it and utilize it well.
2: That's really important and good distinction. Um, Just because you collect data doesn't mean it's insightful and actionable, and certainly that's something we're seeing across the board in healthcare. So to you, Dr. Pariani, um, healthcare is enormously complex, ever-changing. There's so many different stakeholders. You know, what tools do you feel are most essential for those in our audience who want to become healthcare leaders and not only providers to be able to manage effectively within this complex system?
0: Well, I think Dr. Hamadi alluded to, you know, we need to not just recognize problems, but figure out how to deal with them. So just because you know there's an issue, if you don't do anything about it and don't know what to do about it, then you can't really solve the issues. So we create or attempt to create leaders we're assuming most of our students are already managing in some capacity and you know there's a great difference between just managing and leading so we're trying to create healthcare leaders of the future with the correct vision and the correct thinking for a skill set for the future and one of the things you mentioned is team care and that's why we have such a diverse class uh, of uh, different specialties, because we don't really aim for one specialty in healthcare. This is really cross uh, all specialties of healthcare. And we have to work as a team. And I think we saw it in COVID, if we don't work as teams, uh, we have lots of fractured care, and we've had fractured care, you know, all along. Uh, it just e- even brought it to surface, you know, with COVID. So we've got to figure out how to work as teams. So these are skills we try to entrust into our students uh, to become visionaries and figure out skill sets. That allow for team approach to healthcare. And you know, one of the major skills there is communicating properly. Doctors know, know how to communicate with doctors, and nurses know how to communicate with nurses, and you know, technologies know how to communicate talking, but when you try to cross-talk, you get all this uh, well, I know better or I think I know better. So we we've got to take that out and then create a level platform so everybody can communicate at the correct level. That's one of the skill sets we worked at very Consciously at the, making sure that when our students graduate that they have that skill set. So,
2: yeah, that I mean that's definitely essential. Um, one thing I enjoyed when I was a medical student at Johns Hopkins was they would actively try pairing us up with other providers in the ecosystem. So I would I shadowed a pharmacy tech within one of the outpatient centers and you know neurosurgeon in the inpatient obviously. So. One thing that we did not learn, though, as medical students, was much about health policy and practice management. And that's a question that a lot of our audience, um, who are going to be practicing, obviously, within a few years or already are, are curious about. There's trends we've seen and heard from providers That their practices are being bought up by hospitals, you know we've had Kaiser and Geisinger on which are obviously huge integrated delivery networks. Dr. Parani can you talk a bit more about the way practice management is evolving and tools we can use to reduce burnout among the our provider network.
0: So we actually have a specific course in practice management, and that's all we talk about is skill sets required, again, to manage practices, not only from the physician end, but from also the administrative end, because you've got to have support. The problem with burnout is physicians feel that they're all by themselves, that there are loners out there. And COVID, again, has brought it to the surface, right? You're seeing all these patients, hundreds of patients that are sick one after another, and you don't feel like you have the support that you needed. Same thing goes to the nurses. Same thing goes with the lab techs that are doing all the tests on the COVID patients. You know? So we got to, again, work as a team and say we're supporting each other. Support is very critical. If you look at a service of physicians and nurses and all the frontline workers that were uh, involved with COVID, the vast majority of them say they're burned out because they just could not handle the stress of patient after patient of severely, you know, initially severely ill patients that required intensive care and, uh, you know, lots of support. So they really felt themselves that they weren't getting enough support. And again, we got to come up with a team approach to this so that we support all of our professionals, not just the physicians, but the nurses and all the other ancillary providers. So again, a team approach is what's going to take. It'll be very important. The other thing is mental health. You know, mental health has been a ignored area for everyone, including the population. But guess what? It's also been ignored for our providers. So our providers need support too. Fortunately, mental health to a large degree was able to rotate quickly to telehealth, you know, for patients. And so I think that that's very good, but it also needs to help support our providers.
2: Echoes what a lot of our guests on the podcast have said too, we, we were fortunate, to, we had the chief medical officer of Calm, which is one of the most popular you know meditation, mental health apps out there for consumers, Omar Dawood, as well as Ariana Huffington, who runs a group called Thrive Global. And with her, we actually made a course on nursing resilience that you can get continuing education for, though obviously that puts the onus on the provider to become more resilient when the system itself is broken, but obviously it's complex and so you'll need multiple solutions you know The reason we launched this podcast in the first place during the heart of COVID, at least in the U.S., was um, you know how do we not only flatten the curve, but raise the line and improve our healthcare system and make it stronger coming out of COVID than when we began? So we'll start with you, Dr. Amadi, and then go to you, Dr. Parani. What do you think are the lasting changes that the COVID pandemic will yield for the healthcare system?
1: One of the lasting changes is actually a thing that we've started to do but have done it in a fragmented way, which is telehealth. A lot of policies for telehealth has changed drastically during COVID where prior to it was so stringent, afraid of fraud and fraudulent claims. And now with Medicare and uh, CMS and centers for Medicare and Medicaid services, opening up that door for pretty much anything to be delivered through telehealth and will be reimbursable to a certain extent really changes the game where now providers can access not only the specialty care that their hospitals need throughout telehealth, but also crossing the line of the invisible state line that currently exists. If you wanna practice in Florida, you need to have a Florida license. And so the shortage of care is real with the state lines being there and telehealth crosses that line where especially Florida just implemented a new policy that you could be in Georgia or any other state, all you have to do to practice in Florida is apply for a licensure and they will waive the fee. So it's pretty much a free licensure that you can get by just submitting a simple application and now you can practice telehealth. That's a lasting effect that we've been trying to move in that direction for years, but now COVID has made it real. One of the other things that COVID has created is typically when patients access the healthcare system, they access it at a point of fear. They're scared something is wrong, something isn't ticking the way it's supposed to tick. But COVID has showed us that people within the house of these hospitals are now trying to deliver care at a point of fear as well, And there are so many issues and so many training and programs that needs to be developed to address that, to give them the tools to be able to reduce that risk of fear and stress and able them to treat their patients, because that is really the ultimate goal, but also to make sure they are taken care of as well. We've seen a lot of negative rumors happening around with a lot of health administrators providing their nurses and their physicians with only one mask and limiting it because of capacity. And that is not really reflective of all health administrators. This is a reflective of the real drier situation where there are resource issues that now we should definitely account for and be ready because um, according to Dr. Fauci, this is not the only pandemic. This is the first of many future pandemics that we need to prepare for.
0: And I agree. Uh, I think, you know, one of the other things that we've just uh, been talking about already is uh, siloed care. You know, basically healthcare is siloed. You know, we have our silos of areas that we take care of, uh, hospitals, doctors, you know, outpatient clinic surgery. So we finally noticed that we can't all practice independently of each other. We all need to support each other. Telehealth needs to happen for all specialties, not just you know, one specialty. All areas of care needed that access. Uh, And as Dr. Hamadi elegantly pointed out, we need arrangements where we can institute this nationally. Although, you know, it said, healthcare is local, but there are things that we need to do national, that we need to allow things to happen nationally. And telehealth really showed us the, the obvious opportunity for us to be nationally aligned because you need telehealth in Iowa just as much as you need in rural Florida, right? Or, or even urban Florida, right? So we need it everywhere. So we need to have consistent rules where physicians and health practitioners of all sorts, and that goes for mental health also, and other practitioners that can practice with telehealth no matter where they're located.
2: Absolutely. That, that echoes a lot of the, the lessons I think we're all taking away from this. And hopefully it's several silver linings are the change we'll see in the healthcare system as a result of COVID. So my last question is, um, our audience obviously comprises a lot of current and future healthcare professionals. What advice would you give to them about meeting the challenges of the COVID pandemic and approaching their careers in healthcare? And we can start with you, Dr. Priyani, and then end with you, Dr. Mahdi.
0: Sure. So I think the, the key is um, take the initiative. You know, healthcare has finally showed us Who's valuable in society? So, we have people who are very valuable in society in various ways. We regard healthcare as a necessary commodity, but really didn't realize how essential this really was. And we finally found out that, of course, heroes are important in ha- and considered in athletics and, you know, in politics and religious areas, uh, and those are all important. But we finally realized for essential for everyday existence, healthcare personnel are very important. And so I hope it lets everyone know that who wants to be considered healthcare as a future, you're going to be very valued in society. This is a valued position. It's a very noble position. It's a noble calling. And I encourage everyone who has that idea of serving society to, to go into healthcare. It's a very positive and rewarding time. So there were challenges, but I think the positive that's going to come out is we realize how essential all healthcare personnel are.
1: And just to kind of add to this and uh, enhance what Dr. Periani was saying, my only advice really for them is twofold. Question everything. We say that the healthcare system is so complex, but question that, is it really complex or just simply so fragmented that not one single person can explain it? Be that agent of change in the way that you're disrupting the healthcare. A lot of the guests that you've had on this show are really agents for that change and disruption. And disruptive players in healthcare to really change it and simplify it in a way where now the patients are not clueless on what's happening. Even the providers and who are providing the care, a lot of times, do not know what's happening within the walls of the hospital and behind the scenes of what's happening in administration. On a more personal thing, as you engage in a healthcare system that requires you to be so much as part of a new patient's care and part of their lives as you take care of them always remember your lines and your boundaries, your mental health, reflect on where your line stands with administration as you connect with them. It's really important to learn how to say no at the right time and how to say yes for the right reasons.
2: That's some really uh, incredible advice to end on. So I really want to thank both of you, not only for taking the time to be on the podcast, but also for the work that you're doing to train the current and next generation of healthcare leaders.
0: Thank you
1: very much. Thank you so much for having us.
2: And with that, I'm Shiv Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. Take care.
0: For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels.